City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Playwrights I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. We'll be back later in this program to tell you about the American Theatre Wing. But right now, let's join our distinguished panel. Welcome. Today's panel discussion is on playwrights and playwriting, and we have a panel of active and modern playwrights, all of whom have at least one show in New York this season. Let me introduce them to you now. First, Marcia Norman, The Color Purple. John Patrick Shanley, Defiance and Doubt. Lisa Crone, Well. Diana Sun, Satellites. And Christopher Durang, Miss Witherspoon. Welcome. I, I thought I'd uh, ask Lisa the first question. I think it's fair to say that if you look at Lisa's resume, um, uh, that I think she describes herself as somewhere between the theater and performance art. Um, uh, the idea that she has a show opening on Broadway wouldn't jump out at you right <laughs> off the bat. So I thought I would ask, what's it like having a play on Broadway? It's a, it's a little surreal. Yeah, it was not my trajectory as far as I, I mean, when I was, yeah, changing under the bar at the Wawa Hut in <laughs> 1985, I don't think it's what I pictured, no. How did this one get to Broadway? Um, well, I had sort of, you know, I s spent the early 80s working in the performance art scene in the uh, East Village, but became more and more interested in taking my performances and making them into theater. And in particular, I was doing solo work, and I was very interested in the inherent problems in making a solo performance into a play where you get dramatic action if there's no one else on stage with you. So I, I then sort of focused my efforts into that. And, and as that work started to develop, I started to work more in New York theaters, in particular the New York Theater Workshop and the Public Theater have been my homes in New York. Um, and then with the success of my play 2.5 Minute Ride, I started to tour to the regionals. Um, and then when I did uh, well, which has a cast of six at the public, um, you know, it was successful and producers came to look in the way that they do. Um, but I don't think it occurred to anyone except for Liz McCann that it should move to Broadway. And um, she just looked at it and said, I actually think this has a much more mainstream appeal than people are assuming that it does. So it was really her vision that's making that happen. Liz McCann, who was on a previous panel, and, and also I should say that you're, you're, you're in it. I am. So that's a, that's a big, uh, big Broadway chunk. Now, uh, Diana, you, you have a piece at the public this year as well. Coming right? up, yeah. Coming up. Mm -hmm. But you've also done, is the public a home yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally, it's the first play, place I ever saw a play. Um, I went on a high school field trip from my small town 
to go see Hamlet at the Public Theater, so that was the first play I ever saw. So the Public Theater is literally the first theater whose seats I ever sat in. Um, and they produced my play Stop Kiss a few years ago, and um, I actually wrote um, the first draft of Satellites in the Public Theater office, because I felt that on my own, in my own little office, I was um, writing everything but my next play. Um, so when a new literary manager came to the public and said, what, oh, I, I see we have this outstanding commission with you. It was about five or six years old, um, or late at that point. Um, she said, you know, what, what, what can we do? We'll do? You know, anything that you want. And I said, well, I actually think that I need to go to your office and write, because if you're not looking at me and making sure that I'm writing this. I may not write it. I don't think I'm going to write it, yeah. So it is, it is in every way my home. Do any of the others you have similar kind of uh, homes and institutional theaters in New York? I know the Manhattan Theater Club has done several of, of your plays, John. Yes, they, they've done my plays, but I don't write there. I, <laughs> I, um, I, do, I do that at home. But actually, I understand that. And at one point, I had to, um, uh, I rented a, an apartment out in Greenpoint and, uh, as an office. And I, it was a two-bedroom apartment that had no furniture except a desk and chairs. And, and I would go out there and I would write. I was growing basil. Uh, in one of the bedrooms just because I felt so guilty about not using the space. So I had like a basil farm going there. Uh, but uh, after uh, a year, I said to a friend of mine, I said, I feel like an unwed mother. I feel like I'm trapped at home while everybody else is going somewhere. And so then I rented a commercial office and I would go in just to have somebody to say good morning to uh, on the way to uh, uh, my own sad little room again. But at least I had that <laughs> illusion of being part of the workforce, and I liked that for a time. Marcia, do you have a No, home? well, not really. I mean, I, <clears throat> I work at my house, and, um, but, but I think that this issue of, play, of playwrights being championed by a theater uh, or by a producer is really crucial. I mean, I think clearly no playwright gets anywhere without someone standing in front of them saying, I'm going to do the blocking and you can just walk through with the play. And I, you know, I think that that's a crucial thing, that if we had, you know, if we had more of that, we'd have, we'd have more great plays. And I mean, the people that do find champions you know, managed to survive. I think there's, there's a, a common feeling among non-playwrights that, 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 that since it starts with you guys, it starts with the word, that you, know, you go somewhere, sit at a typewriter, computer, whatever, and face a blank piece of paper and then decide, do I have anything to say? But is that, is that maybe not the norm? Is, is, does somebody encourage you to do that? Well, I think, you know, this idea that somebody's eager to hear it is critical. You know, I think right now it would be silly for anybody to sit down and say, well, I'm just, I mean, it would be very brave for someone to sit down and say, I'm just going to write a play. I don't know anyone, but soon they will all know me. I mean, that, that's a, a kind of mythic notion. The, the way that it is now is somebody says, Oscar says to Diana, you know, we'd really like to see whatever you do next. And that, that makes it happen. And that's enough of an incentive to, to sit down oh, and sure. find something. Yeah, because then you know that when you get finished, you'd know what to do next. Then you go, you know who to call. It's not just, oh, now I go see if anybody's home next door, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think those people, those Liz McCanns, those people are crucial mm -hmm. um, but, in but our lives. Do you, do you also um, wonder when you, if given the, the circumstances and you are going to write wherever that you have anything to say? Or does that come, where does that come from? Chris, where does the, where does the, how does the muse sing? Huh. Well, it's a very good question, and I don't have an immediate answer. Uh, but I guess I do have an answer. Because uh, we all start before we know Oscar and Liz. So somebody, you do start eventually with a, 
with a blank page. And, and then sometimes you do go back to it. I remember a play of mine, Baby with the Bathwater. I had had a play, Beyond Therapy, that was commissioned by the Phoenix. So I had that initial encouragement, we'd like to see your next play. And, um, and I was feeling it was time to write another play. And I literally sat down. It was typewriters back then, a typewriter and a blank page. And I just had not a clue what I was going to write. And it started he, she, he, she. And they had a baby. And then on page four, a nanny came in. So um, a very crazy nanny. Um, so in, so you know, that was a very odd example, because I literally sat down not having an idea. And it means that for some reason, I was thinking about uh, Actually, I'd seen something very disturbing on the subway, which unconsciously had uh, affected me, which is I just saw, I'm talking about the early 80s, uh, not that it matters because it's still true. <laughs> well, I saw a, a, a two-year-old in a stroller and a, a clearly unbalanced parent, mother, just at the child and criticizing and on and on and on. I thought, oh, this child just doesn't have a chance. And that was actually the theme of the play that just we're at, you know, where it's such, everyone is at, is at um, the mercy of our parents and the, the good and the bad. And if it's mostly bad, then you're really in trouble. Um, other times, I've, um, when I wrote Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You, I'd had a writer's block for about two years. And my mother was uh, dying of cancer, which was very sad. And it was a long death. And um, I was no longer a believer in my, the Catholic faith I was brought up in, but I felt very disoriented because watching my mother's illness, I wished I were a believer because it's so hard to say to somebody dying, I don't know what to say. Um, it's so much easier to say, oh, this is part of God's plan and you're going to go to heaven and blah, blah, blah. Um, by the way, I'm not actually an atheist. I'm sort of, a, I don't know what I am. I'm a, a supermarket uh, agnostic, whatever that means. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, from that thought back on my religious upbringing, and I thought, wow, when I grew up in that, there was an answer for absolutely everything. So my impulse went from that to, I want to write a play in which a representative of the Catholic Church comes out and explains everything. And the emphasis on everything was very important to me, and it's what was actually the, the uh, jump start. But I've also been in Diana's position of having a, a commission and thinking, oh, well, uh, one bad example, um, Actors Theatre of Louisville gave me a very hefty commission that I eventually returned because I kept not coming up with the play. And when I came up with little pieces of it, uh, John Jury just didn't respond to them. And so after a while, we parted company and I gave the initial money back. Oh, or then a happier example, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Emily Mann at McCarter offered me a commission um, and just said, would you be interested? And, uh, and I used it as what Marcia just said, as this encouragement of somebody saying, you know, we want to know what you'll do next. And, and uh, <clears throat> it was the play Miss Witherspoon that uh, was first done at McCarter and then at Playwrights Horizons. So. Marcia, am I accurate that the Actors Theatre of Louisville gave you a commission that actually got you started as a playwright? Well, it was a commission that I rejected. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I had decided that I wanted to be a writer, and I had decided I needed to take off a year and work three jobs to get together the money to sit down and write. And in the course of that year, John Jory called me um, and asked me if I um, would come talk to him. He wanted to commission a play. The play he wanted me to write was, he wanted me to take a tape recorder out to the local schools 
who were currently undergoing busing to achieve integration in the schools and interview people and then bring the tapes back to the theater and um, you know we would make the play then out of those tapes and um, I I, I walked out, he said, you don't have to, you know, take a week. And I said, okay, but I mean, I'm walking out of the office thinking, I don't want to do this. How can I, how could I actually turn down $5,000 um, when in fact I've said that what I want to do is write plays. And I thought about it for a week and came back and said, you know, I can't believe I'm saying no here, but that, that isn't what I want to write about. And there was just like, then there was this pause in, in which sort of my future was like right there in this little <laughs> pause. And John, and John said, because I was getting ready to say, so, you know, okay, thank you. But what John said was, well, what do you want to write about? And that was it. That was like it. And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, let's have some lunches. And he put me through this sort of three-week, you know, intensive lunch course <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of what he said. I, I can just tell you the mistakes you don't have to make as a first-time writer. And Chris knows from Juilliard. I mean, I still convey these same lessons that John told me in those three weeks. And then, you know, he, he especially gave me a great piece of advice about, uh, you know, when you're looking for a subject, look to a time in your life when you were ter when you're terrified, when you were really frightened, when you were scared, when you were just frozen with fear. And um, that, that does indeed turn out to be a great place to look for subject matter. So what, what I did, I remembered a, a girl that I knew who was, um, I knew her when I worked at a state mental hospital. And she was this really dangerous kid, really violent, really awful, hideous 13-year-old, who by that, that time of John asking me the question was uh, in federal prison for murder. So, you know, I, I decided, okay, I'll write about her because she scared the daylights out of everybody when she was around. And, um, and you know, that basically I wrote that play and John said, you know, oh, my God, you know, you've just won the Great American Play Contest. I mean, it, it was literally like that. It, and in those days, this, these things happened. <laughs> <laughs> the old days. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that it, it actually, I think it was a, one of those good situations where he, you know, he evinced this interest in me, but I avoided that commission that would have taken me down the road to, you know, documentary playwriting, which, you know, I can easily see that that would have happened. If, it, if, that, if that play about busing had been good, then maybe I would have gone out to GE and, you know, I, I would have been on another kind of dramatic, you know, life. So... I think it's an interesting comment about taking a, a moment from your life that's terrifying. I don't want to say the right, the right word. Does that, does that uh, sound familiar? Well, I think it's good advice when, when Marcia says I'm familiar with it at Juilliard. Marcia and I teach at Juilliard. We co-teach, so it's like running a talk show together. Uh, and I, I actually didn't realize that it was from John Jury, that because yeah. that, uh, that is a, a great thing to say. And I can see that when Marcia mentions it to our students, they all light up because it, you know, Something you have a really strong reaction to is a good place to start. I, I, I've not consciously written anything that I was afraid of, at least that I can remember. Has well, anyone the, else? The thing, the thing that's interesting about the, David Lindsay Abair has a play just now on Broadway called The Rabbit Hole, um, and he, you know, he's very kind and says, you know, Marcia told me that I should write something that I was that I was afraid of, and he said at the time I was 26, and he says I I had nothing. You know, which is interesting. I mean, when you're that young, you really, what, what can frighten you? But as soon as he had a child, then he understood, oh, okay, if anything happened to this child, I would be in big trouble. So that's the, you know, that, in a sense, that's the sort of wisdom of the advice that you, something about fear really imprints 
you know, memories, smells, real specifics, what people had in their pockets when they said things to you, you know, you can, you can easily recreate that circumstance that so frightened you. Since, we, since you both mentioned Juilliard, it, you are the co-directors of, of the Juilliard Drama Division, uh, the playwriting part of the Drama Division right. at, at Juilliard. I just wondered, um, what kind of training did any of you all have before we talk about what training you, you give off now? Did you train? I took a course called Introduction to Playwriting at, uh, <laughs> at, at NYU. It was actually, it was very helpful, you know. I read a couple of books on playwriting and I wrote a play and they put it on immediately. <laughs> I've been a poet for many years and uh, nobody cared. And uh, I wrote a play and everybody got together and built scenery and learned their lines <laughs> and put on costumes and I said, well, this is significantly better. And um, uh, I, I recognized as soon as I started writing in that form that that's what I did. So that, you know, I was, I, that introduction for me was rather brief, but I've been in school ever since, and the school is the theater. You know, to actually go in front of an audience and work shows is very instructive. I, th I think it's fair to say that all of your work um, plays with the rules, twists the rules, and, and breaks the fourth wall, and twists the fourth wall, and all that kind of stuff. Do, do you feel that there's a, 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 are there some rules and rules that, that you have to know before you can break them? Well, I say that there are. Say that you are. You know, I mean, I think it's useful when you're, when, you know, it's useful to know that, that conflict is at, the, is at the center of the theater. It's useful to say, you know, plays about one person are somehow, you know, the audience relates to them more quickly because we go through life as a single person. So, you know, when you're watching Othello and not Othello and his brother, you know, th that's easier. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some things like that. I think there's a kind of, you know, it's, it's Aristotle, you know, I mean, it's, you, you, you make a promise at the beginning of the play, you know, we, we're going to find out who gets mama's piano, and at the end, we find that out and then we can go home. You know, there are, there are those really basic things. But I think, and I think knowing them actually helps. I think it helps to have, you know, students basically sort of rebel and say, oh, that's not true. I can write a play about eight people. And then <laughs> sometimes they can. Yeah. I mean, in, in Stop Kiss, you, you play with time. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that you thought of when you started to write it? Or as you were writing it, you thought, oh, I can tell this story by taking the form and twisting it a little, breaking it a little? No, it did come together. It did, did come together, um, I guess, um, I had the, uh, I've had an experience in my life where, you know, in one moment, you know, my life irre irrevocably changed. Um, and, because uh, it's something that happened to my mother. And so I think, and that happened when I was 18. And so I have, uh, for a long time before I wrote Stop Kiss, I was thinking about, can you believe that just X amount of time ago, my life was like this and now it's like this. Um, so yeah, so that, I think that, you know, it, it wasn't a place of terror, but I mean, it, the initial reaction was terror, but it did come from a place of like, I'm trying to make sense, mm. sense of two pieces that don't go together. Uh, yeah. But the theatricality of it was developed or did you sort of think, think of, of it at the... Oh, I thought about the kiss. I thought first, you know, it was the kiss and then I knew the kiss would be the last thing in the play. And then I just had to go back and start at the beginning right. <laughs> and figure how would it lead up to that. 
And have you found, as, as a performance artist, when you're writing your own material, you have to be, you're, I mean, you, you edit it by, by doing it, and if there's no reaction or something, you know, whoops. This. Well, it's tremendously instructive, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I think the thing that has to happen, and it's a really hard concept to understand, is dramatic action. And I think we can describe it. And I've um, taught this year, I haven't done a lot of teaching, but this year I taught a, a course at to the graduate playwrights at Yale. And it, it's interesting how, just how difficult it is to really grasp mm -hmm. what it means for something to happen on, to really happen on stage, to watch someone change. In particular, I think, for the audience to see what might happen to a character that the character doesn't see themselves, mm -hmm. um, how to really make that happen. I mean, I think, you know, none of us know what's going to happen in the next minute, really. And that's the essence of what happens in the theater, is to capture the audience seeing that character, not, you know, that setup of what life is. And, um, you know, certainly in performing my own work, when there are, um, I mean, Paula Vogel actually, uh, I worked with her um, as, an actor workshopping <clears throat> Mineola twins, and it was amazing to watch her ruthlessly cut her play. And she said to me, never hang on to poetry for its own sake. You know, the play has to move. And as a performer of my own work, I can totally feel that. I mean, it makes me ruthless about, you know, th images that I love or language that I love. But when I'm on stage and there's actually no dramatic action behind them, it's like trying to, you know, pull a semi up a hill. It's really, really difficult, and so um, it, it is very instructive in that way. And I don't know, I mean, like John, I learned about the theater by doing theater, and I you know, happened to come to New York in this particular time where I got to be on stage all the time, um, making plays and throwing them away with you know, audiences that were really interesting, but really no kind of attention that had any pressure attached to it. And so I feel in a certain way like I trained like a vaudevillian. You know, it was mm -hmm. a very lucky way um, to get to do theater, and I feel like I learned a lot. And I don't, I don't know how you really learn about theater unless you're Actually doing, doing it. it. Unless you, I mean, because it's not, you know, a script, it seems to me, is a blueprint for this thing that happens on a stage and then this thing that happens with an audience. And you don't, it's always incomplete unless you're having that interaction with the audience. How is Shakespeare able to write these long poetic passages and it's not boring? How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I write a wonderful turn of phrase. I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> and I cross it out because I know I have to get on with it. I'm like, why doesn't Shakespeare have to get on with it? But you know well, why is he getting on with it? Don't you think it's hard? It's, it's yeah. hard. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's hard to make those plays. I mean, that's why it's so rare that you see a good, production. a good production of Shakespeare. <laughs> because the, the director and the actors, and you know, because those people have to find that, you know, what that mechanism is. And it's not easy to find, I think. I mean, I think, I mean, the one thing that I've found to be true is that we're all scared to say who we are. We're all scared to tell the truth. We'll do anything rather than tell the truth. And then when you do tell the truth, then by the truth I mean what is true for you in the moment, the audience likes it. They're interested. They're with you. They smell it. And when you're lying and showing off whatever it is you're doing, it's just boring. 
And so I, I wonder if Shakespeare just wasn't like a real truth teller and that you're going to sit at the feet of a person who has that kind of courage. That's pretty amazing. I, I mean, it's clearly a collaborative world, the theater. And, um, you know, as writers, who's, who's the next collaborator that you let in to, to, to your project? Do you guys write and have somebody that you show it to, or do you... I mean, I gather I mean, sometimes it's a commission that's come from a specific person, so I assume that's the specific person. But I've always wondered who's the... I mean, because you can have opinions, you can have more opinions than you need. Where are the important opinions and in what order? I like to have actors read it out loud. I like other people to be there. Because nobody can control the situation then. Either it's playing or it stinks. I think this is really right. It's really hard. We always advise people, don't, you know, don't, don't just hand it to somebody to read and have one person talk back to you. You know, give it to... It's not meant to exist on the page. It's not a piece of, you know, it's not a manuscript in that way. And what you need to do is hear it, and then you need to get the response from the other people that are in the room. Uh, you know, you need to kind of see what it is. You need to let it, like, rise up out of the, off of the print and uh, to see what you have. I don't think you know what you have till you... But, but it happens a lot that young writers will revise, you know, they'll, they'll be so eager to hear from someone, they'll take it next door, you know, in the middle of the night and what, play, read this, and, sure. and, then, and then the person next door will say, well, I don't know, what, why do, why, yeah, I think you should make the brother a dog, you know, <laughs> or like that, right? And the person will think, you know, that's, that's good, I'll go do it. And hmm. so that before anybody has even had a chance to hear it or see it or read it or, you know, this, a rewrite is in the works and, uh, you know, that can... That's a mess for kids, yeah. you know. So this hearing is really, that's really the answer. And, and are actors easy to come by to, 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 to read? Or Dime a dozen. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking of the breadth of plays that, that are represented on this panel. I'm thinking, you know, some of, there wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think the same group of actors would, would read each, you know, each one of these plays. But I just, you know, I, I'm curious, because you've all written a, a great many, you know, are, are there actors for whom you perhaps write for? Yeah, know? I think they're an eager and wonderful group of people that are really willing to help. And I think, you know, yeah, Chris has people in mind when he writes. You know, I do too. And, you know, they don't even have to be alive or available. Right. You know, you can still write for them. Yeah. But you, exactly. I mean, you, you have some actors that are like, read your work better than others, right? Have uh, yeah, I, for I, I do. I, I actually don't usually write with them consciously in mind. Um, partially, I wrote an early play, History of the American Film, with Sigourney Weaver in mind before anybody knew her, because Sigourney and I went to Yale School of Drama together. And... Uh, even though she's deservedly have a, had a wonderful career, her first couple of years, she had trouble getting cast because of how tall she was, how patrician she was, and uh, a patrician she seemed. And um, anyway, I, I told her I had written History of the American Film with her in mind. And not only that, but I, I even added a joke where they talk about the heroine being having to leave the orphanage because she was too tall. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't get anyone to hire Sigourney in the part. They came close, but... And, and it made her feel um, uh, disappointed. And so I, I actually protected myself and my actor friends by just not consciously writing about them, or writing with them in mind. And, and uh, happily, Sigourney has, uh, when, when Beyond Therapy was done off-Broadway, it was Sigourney Weaver and uh, Stephen Collins. And at that point, she had just come out with Alien. And even though it's nothing like my play, the, the, the theater was very happy to hire her right, suddenly. Right. So, um, I mean, it wasn't they who had turned them her down the first time. But, um, but I agree with John. I absolutely, the first thing is I want to hear actors read it aloud. And, and I think it, the, the hard 
the tricky thing is I, I'm sure we all know some of the same actors and, and other times don't. I mean, I, I, um, I went to Yale School of Drama in the, in the Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, uh, the late Wendy Wasserstein uh, period. And um, uh, so I know all those people uh, from there. And then when I came to New York, uh, we were somewhat called the Yale Mafia, right. uh, partially because you do tend to work with people you went to school with. And I later learned there are other mafias. There's, uh, uh, oh, what, what's, the, what's the college that Kathy Bates is from in Texas? SMU. Uh, SMU. SMU. There's that mafia, a lot of talented people from that. and. Uh, uh, they're starting to be uh, Juilliard. I was going to say, yeah. have you, have you created a Juilliard in NYU too? Any case, but I find hearing actors read it aloud is is just so wonderful, and you just hear things. There was the first time I heard uh, Sister Mary read aloud, and she has long monologues. But there was one she's reading questions that are given from the audience, and uh, there was this one question that she had a three-line answer, and then three paragraphs more. And when I heard it, the three lines were so good that I just heard that the three paragraphs that followed were just blah, 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 and it was actually the first cut I made, and it was, no one suggested it, it was just hearing it aloud. So I, I love hearing it with actors. I was wondering, John, if any of the Catholic stuff that he was talking about was familiar to you in any way. <laughs> well, you know, Catholicism is a great religion because it gives you this enormous thing to react to. <laughs> And, uh, no, that's true. and filled with specifics, yeah. costumes, lines, <laughs> and uh, I think in general that, that that's uh, that's very stimulating for an artist, whether it's the Catholic Church or uh, right now I'm writing about the Marine Corps because I was in the Marine Corps, uh, and uh, um, specificity, the specificity of experience coming in, generates a specificity specificity of expression coming out. And um, uh, that's why, you know, one of the great dangers for playwrights now and has been for some time is pop because so much is coming in that is just this year's television program that your tendency is to respond very specifically back to that and what that means is in a year it's going to be dated. Uh, so uh, it's, it's nice if you can expose your children to traumatic experiences <laughs> over and over again, as I'm sure Chris, when I take my children and lock them in a closet and hit them with a baseball bat once a day just so that they know <laughs> what something they can draw something on write later. About later. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, you, you made a passing reference to, to, to television. I want to talk a little bit about um, the fact that you've all chosen to work in the theater and also other I mean, other professions, other writing professions as well. I, uh, I know that, that you, Diana, are, uh, are still a writer for, mm -hmm. for um, Law and Order, mm -hmm. West Wing you were? Or? Law and Order, criminal intent, yeah. Um, what, so, so is, that, is that one slot during the day and then playwriting is another slot or is it, what, what, what do they both give you? Oh, um, the particular way my show works is it comes in waves. I'm almost like a freelancer on staff, like when it's, you know, it's sort of a batting lineup. There's Warren Light and Marlena Meyer and Gina Gianfrido and myself and some other writers. And uh, so when you're at bat, you're plotting and then you're writing and that takes about an eight week period. And then you have sort of auditions and pre-production, but after that you have another probably eight weeks off. So, um, uh, and then somebody else is at bat and you go to the, back to the dugout. Right. So, um, so when I'm in the dugout is when I can work on my plays um, and pick up my son at 2.30 uh, after school. Um, 
Uh, but it's but it's a different kind of writing, right? And television. Oh yeah, is very it's really. I mean, in TV writing. When you talk about like, you know, are you writing for somebody? I mean, you are literally. You're an employee. You know, so you're thinking like, oh, will my boss like this line? Oh, he'll like this line. He <laughs> likes that kind of line, or you know, or oh, this. Oh, oh, he'll find this. Hmm. You know. So you're always trying to second guess. You know, somebody else. You know, who and that person will ultimately, you know, rewrite your draft anyway. You know, so you're, you're kind of jockeying, ooh, I want this line to survive because it's mine, mm. you know. Um, so I'll make it try and sound like him. Right. Um, whereas with playwriting, you know, it's, it's almost intimidatingly uh, you alone in a big room, you know, and you, 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 know, you say, echo, you know what I mean? And, and, and you're the only one who can say, well, that really sounded like you. When you right. said echo, you did, you know, like, you, you know. Um. But it also explains in a way why, why playwright, plays are owned by the playwrights. Mm -hmm. And when you do television, you get a paycheck, you work for, it's a work for yeah. hire, somebody else owns it, right? Yeah, sure. And I, I don't think of those scripts as, here, read something I wrote. This is like, this is my day job. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the fact that it's you writing them, I mean, even though, yes, you're being paid, yes, the story, you know, that crew over there at Criminal Intent, I mean, that's a fantastic bunch of playwrights mm -hmm. writing. I mean, starting with Warren, I mean, you know, this is, and I think television is really benefiting from this kind of influx of writers from the theater who, you know, you can't not write like yourself. Do you know, you, yes, you can do the job, mm -hmm. but still, the work on that show is, is wonderfully informed and funny and, you know, and, and takes human beings seriously. And, you know, I mean, I think that, that there are a lot of people that don't understand to what extent theater goers are staying home and watching the work of theater writers mm -hmm. on television. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And th that's something that really needs to be addressed in the theater, and the producers need to understand that you know th this is a serious thing that's happening. Is the television's being taken over by playwrights, and so what does that mean for you know for the theater? Mm -hmm. so I think it's something to talk about. And those are also New York-based television shows, so that you can you can write for the public theater, and you can also write for, right. for the Law and Order series of shows. Right. Well, Neil Simon wrote for Sergeant Bilko yeah. and uh, and uh, other stuff as well. Um, I've always wanted to get a part on Law and Order. <laughs> I just want to be the guy that you ask, and I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Every week that you come to me, I say, no, I never saw that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could get that He's job. just doing that audition just right now. Yeah. Yes. Now, John, you were actually an Academy Award-winning screenplay writer for Moonstruck. What was that? It was. <laughs> I read your, it was a couple pages back in the bio. That's right. Um, what was, what's that like? What's the movie world like? Um, well, the first four films that I, I did, I wrote on, on spec. I wrote exactly what I wanted, and those four films were made in the order that I wrote them. So I was very lucky and uh, anomalous in that way. And... Um, um, then I wrote, you know, some movies for hire. Uh, one of them was Congo. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, you know, made a lot of money that I needed to make. And uh, it was fine. I, I've been fortunate in that I have a very strong ability to quit. So whenever anybody wanted me to write something that I didn't want, I just quit. Um, and um, sometimes life will let you do that. Necessity can make things quite different, and I would have done what was necessary to support myself and my children. It just didn't come to that. I, if I may, I wanted to, I, I once asked John how he got Moonstruck made in his voice, because I, I thought it was so wonderful, and because I've had 
dreadful uh, luck in, in writing movies. And when John said he wrote it on spec, what he means is he wrote it in his own apartment for himself and then had the finished script and shopped it around. And then how quickly did you find Norman Jewison? Because he just liked it as it was, which yeah. almost never happens. Yeah. It, but he uh, just liked it. Yeah, he just liked it. And, and uh, Tony Bell just liked Five Corners, uh, which I basically wrote at the same time. And, yes, and both of them yes. were made. And they pretty much shot what I wrote and, uh, you know, asked me to change a couple of things for locations and, and that was it. So I was just, it's just completely atypical. But then everything's atypical yeah. for mm -hmm. everyone, always. It's a great model. I mean, Adam no, Rapp is. has just done the same thing. Yes, I, mean, right. it, I mean, I think playwrights need to hear this about don't wait to be offered the big money to write the movie that's going to make you famous. Just go ahead and write the movie, you know, and, th and then, it's you, then it's yours and you're in charge. Yeah, no, it is a, a great way. My thing was that after a couple of plays I, I had various Hollywood meetings and and either I'd be offered an idea to do or, or sometimes they'd say do you have an idea and particularly early on I would have ideas that were just as quirky as my plays and they would like them but then they would pay me to write them and so because they were in on it from the beginning that meant that you got all this feedback and in my case, at least, I felt by the time I, I mean, I was proud, I always got through all the drafts and I would really work hard to take their notes and keep it be good. But when it was over, I found that they kind of went, you know what, this is too quirky. I don't think we want to spend millions and millions on it. So, and unfortunately, I did that several times. <laughs> um, and also, the, the money was very helpful. Uh, you know, because it's also true that someone can do what John did and no one will buy the script. So it's right. not like it's a perfect one way to do it. But I must say, I admire John for doing that. And I thought that those two movies you mentioned, Moonstruck and Five Corners, are so idiosyncratically yours. And that's so rare in American movies. So I think that's great. It is. And a lot of people write spec scripts and that doesn't happen. Right. And I was fortunate. I was quite fortunate. Had you done a movie script before? Did you know the format of it, or did you just figure, I can do this? I, I had gotten a national endowment for the arts grant for playwriting, and I had been painting people's apartments. And I knew with the money that I would gotten that I had a year that I could write. And I wrote a new play, and then I thought, if I don't do something to change my situation, I'll be painting people's apartments again in a few months. And so I thought, well, I have to write a movie. And I started uh, watching James Bond movies and thinking, how would you write that? How would you actually write that down, what I'm looking at? And uh, then I started to read screenplays, and I read one called Scarface by Oliver Stone, and I got it. I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Because if I actually, what I was reading was real purple prose, you know, this guy, incredibly handsome, his hair blowing in the wind, his face set against injustice, and I was like, this is bad. <laughs> and then I thought, would it be bad if you saw it? And I thought, no, it'd just be Al Pacino. Right. In a boat. <laughs> It'd be okay, you know? And uh, uh, that's what he's doing, you know? This is not for publication. This is to capture what you want to capture when you're shooting, which is a different, different animal. And then I, I just turned around and I turned that camera on my own childhood. And I just remembered what was cinematic about my own childhood and wrote down all those visual scenes. And then I thought about a story that would hook all those scenes together many parts of which were true, and then put together this sort of autobiographical uh, cinematic collage uh, and named it Five Corners, and, uh, and they made it. So that's sort of how I got into it.
There's a, there's a wonderful quote, which I may mangle slightly from an interview with, with John, in which you said that the, you, the first half of your, of your career is spent dealing with your own problems, the second half dealing with other people's problems. Yes, I, I made a, a decision uh, several years ago. I had a big picture moment about my life, my writing life. And I said, okay, the first half of my writing life, I'm going to work out my problems, and I'm going to talk about my family, and I'm going to talk about my girlfriends, and I'm going to do all that stuff. And then at a certain moment, I'm going to enter the Parthenon, and I'm going to start to talk with the men and women in the, of the city about what is going on in the world. And that is what I've chosen to do now for the last probably three, four years. And it's a very exciting thing for me. Uh, and organically time for me to turn my attention in that direction. And it's, it's such an exciting and interesting time in the world right now uh, where everybody is full of feeling and ideas and the clashes are right there in front of us and emotion is not enough. And analysis and, the, the, and logic and emotion and impression all have a tremendous part to play in an international social dialogue. It's a great time to be writing. Lisa, do you have a reaction to? <laughs> I probably said you were wrapped. <laughs> a reaction to that. I mean, because of, 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 of what parts of your life you deal with at whatever, at whatever time. I just I would think it's a fascinating quote about dealing with your own problems or dealing with, with others. And I just wondered if you had a. A reaction. And they're not all the people on the panel who are members of a group called the Five Lesbian Brothers, so I thought it, <laughs> there had to be something there. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say no one's ever asked me to write for TV <laughs> or film or anything, really, um, except for the theater. Would you write for TV? Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you get cast. <laughs> I, see, I see we're working. You, so much you can write it, you can play the guy who doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I understand that impulse. I, I, I mean, that's totally interesting to me. I, I completely understand that impulse. I mean, I have always, uh, I work, I have always worked in my personal work using autobiographical material, although I have also, my point has never been to tell things about my life. For whatever reason, that's how I know to um, get to to find a level of specificity and truth um, that feels dynamic and interesting to me. Um, but always what I strive for is to, and what I'm, what I'm trying to do is deal with ideas, themes, issues through that prism. Um, but I, I mean, I, I feel often like, I would love to write about, you know, draw on something else. And, um, I mean, it was very interesting for me to hear that because I do sort of anticipate that at some point that will also be true for me. Marcia? It's, it's a great subject. I mean, we, we, Chris and I had this writer at Juilliard who, I think, invented this term. She talked about all writers having something she called content your content, which would be your, your sort of stuff that you wrote out of, and that even after you quit writing the details of it, it would, this content would still determine what you paid attention to and what you were drawn to. Um, one of the best conversations I ever had with Chris was about this idea that 
we're all really, really great writers when we're writing out of that central core of our being. Um, and then we're sort of okay writers when we're writing about other stuff. But there are certain subjects where we might be negligible even as writers. That, that, that there's something about the right material, mm -hmm. the right topic, the right kind of conflict, the right forces at work that pull that great writing out of you. You know, it used to be that, that like Tennessee Williams would say, oh, okay, I, I am assigned to write this story and I write it over and over and over for my whole life. And you, you can look, in fact, at various you know, writers and say, well, okay, that was a theme, that's a story he really liked to tell, that was a journey she kept being on. And, but there's something really thrilling in it about knowing that, you know, yeah, you find that and you, you know, whether or not you actually say the details of your life, you're still writing out of that urge. I mean, I'm always writing about confinement, about being trapped. I mean, when I'm, when I'm writing about that, I'm really good. When I'm writing about people that have lots of options and lots of freedom and no problems and no confinement, they're not in jail in any way, you know, I'm just, you know, a perfectly adequate person that can write sentences in English. And, and, yeah. and that, you know, that's a, that's a thing to really be kind of modest and humble in the face of about, the, about writing in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I want to, I'll just add something about what John said. Uh, I identified with it. I, I think we're close in age probably, and it may be part of that. But I, I, I started writing plays in a very absurdist style, and as I kept going, I started to bring in more emotion that people could identify with because I was scaring them with my absurdist plays. Um, but I started to realize that even my absurd plays were based on my extended family. I'm an only child, but I had many, many aunts and uncles and lots of crazy interactions. And I was really drawing on that all the time. Up through my play, The Marriage of Bette and Boo, in 1985 at The Public, which was my one unabashedly biographical play, which dealt with my parents directly, and I played myself, <laughs> which was very weird to do. But um, the play that I wrote after that, two years later, was Laughing Wild, and I realized it was not about my family. It was maybe about me. It was maybe about my friends. It was mostly about, ooh, it's really hard to live right now right after the Reagan years and, and the city has all these mental patients in it. And anyway, I, I, I've realized that it's not been a conscious decision, but I think my plays since then are not coming from I'm thinking about my family anymore. I think I slightly finished that uh, with the other one. And I'm also finding that I don't write as frequently, and I think it may be because, you know, growing up you have a full 20 years of taking in all this stuff and you have a lot to put out, and then you know, as you're looking around uh, the world, uh, you know, you may process it more slowly. So anyway, I, I really was interested to hear you say that because I, I recently had that thought about myself. Okay, let's, let's take a little break now and hear a little bit more about the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence and we support education in the theatre. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. 
Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. I wanted to ask a question, if, if there's any, um, any concerns when you depict in one of your plays somebody who is very specific. I know you, you write for yourself, but if you write for somebody who is very specifically alive or you know, is a figure, if there's a certain sensitivity to it. I want to ask Chris if, uh, if that's come up in your, in your work. You mean public figures or family no, figures? No, either. <laughs> um, well, I think... I think uh, Family figures, family figures, writing directly uh, about your family is a tricky thing to do, and I think lots of people do it. And with The Marriage of Bet and Boo, I, I wrote the very first draft uh, uh, early on as an exercise, ne famous last words, never expecting to produce it. And I even used everybody's real names. And then uh, in the little world of, of Yale, one of the, uh, my playwriting teacher, Howard Stein, showed it to a directing student who wanted to do it. And in that world, a, a director with the acting students in a formal production was a big deal. And so I changed the names, mostly. And um, I let it be done, but I didn't let my uh, relatives know about it, because anyway. <laughs> and then I put it aside because I thought there are 10 characters in this and I've written a one act and that's impractical and I think it can become a full length. But later on when I uh, had expanded the play after my mother died, uh, there was a period where Joe Papp had decided to do it and I suddenly just got aware that my father was still alive. Well, I didn't become aware he was alive. <laughs> I, I became conscious of the fact that he could read reviews of the play that would sound rather like him and it would make him feel bad. So um, I, um, I called Joe Papp up um, and said, you know, I'm having cold feet about it because my fa father's alive. And Joe was a very, he had very father-son kind of dealings with his playwrights, especially the males, of course, but, and then some father-daughter <laughs> ones. But uh, anyway, he was very sympathetic to that. So we postponed the play. And uh, um, we, when it was done, my father was still alive, but he'd had a stroke and was no longer mentally aware. And so then I felt. And, uh, but I mean, uh, other people um, would sometimes go ahead with it anyway. I just felt bad about my father. So um, I did it later. Um, I, I hope, I hope, well anyway, I don't have too many relatives left living, but there were some people I was alluding to that I thought, you know what, I can't wait for them to die. We've got to get the play on. And, you know, I lived through it, and it's part of my material too, and so I did change the names and, you know, fictionalize it some, but uh, I, there were some people I was, uh, you know, willing to just take it on the chin if they were upset. Um, and Lisa, your mother is a major figure in your play, right? Don't yeah, need to cut you but, off. No, but no, I, please, that's a good point. Yes? Yes. It's complicated. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's... Is your mother living? She is, 
Yeah. Does she have a lawyer? It's, <laughs> no, it's a wonderful portrayal of her. I mean, I, I would, I, when I saw Lucy's play at Sundance a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, if that could only have been my mother, I would have been okay. <laughs> right. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, 2.5 Minute Ride was about my father, although the, it was a solo. The character of, her, of him was not <laughs> embodied on stage. I mean, I think ultimately it is a very flattering but you know, who's to say? I mean, I think... Has she seen it? Yeah, many times, yes. <laughs> does she give you notes, or does she, lo does she love it? She loves it, and she's terrorized by it. Mm. I mean, there are things about it. I mean, she has trouble uh, believing in a certain way. You know, I mean, she's, she is the character who's on stage. And, you know, when people see it, they're like... And then they meet my mother. They say, oh, my God, I thought you were exaggerating. You weren't kidding. I mean, because she's a big... <laughs> Personality, but the first time she saw it, she said to Jane Howdyshell, who is unbelievable, who plays my mother. And really, I mean, people often think she is my mother. I mean, Jane is just masterful. And so she really gives you the illusion that there's this... I mean, you know, she's sort of written as this kind of extra theatrical character, someone who's plopped in the middle of a play but has no idea what a play is or what the rules of the theater are. And... Um, which is really, really fun for the audience, and Jane does it so beautifully. I mean, people think that she is really this thing, and, um, uh, and she does that while projecting to the back of a 1,200-seat theater. I mean, she's, she's unbelievable. Um, and the first time my mother saw it, you know, she said, oh, Jane, you did such a good job. Even I want to be Anne Crone. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the play talks about a lot of things that are hard for my mother. You know, it talks about her chronic illness. And, um, you know, the fact that... Um, I mean, the, thing that, the things that audiences end up loving about her, but she's self-conscious about, and she would not choose to put those put those things on stage. And I, I, I mean, even for my father, who I think that he's very, I mean, it's a, certainly not, you know, it's a complicated picture of him that's in 2.5 Minute Ride, but it's very flattering to him. And he has a much easier time than my mother does see, seeing it as something outside himself, which essentially it is. But even for him, I think it's a very dislocating experience because, you know, you're made up of a million different things. And then somebody takes... 12 and, terms, ter and says, this is who this person is. And, you know, the focus really changes. I mean, you know, the first time my father saw it, you know, there were conversations that he hadn't even really registered, and all of a sudden they become a defining moment. And what that definition was, was he was happy with it. But it's, you know, I often think it's like, you know, those cultures where to have your picture taken is to have your soul stolen. And I feel like in a certain way that's what I've done. I've stolen their souls for my play. So, um, you know, I think I go along either because it's true or because it's what I tell myself um, on the assumption that there's some greater good being served. And that may or may not be true. But <laughs> it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. And I think it is a trade-off. It's, you know, there are ways in which my mother loves it and she's very flattered and other ways in which it is not what she would choose. Any of the Bronx uh, neighborhood guys or, or gals in any of your plays? Oh, come tons, tons. <laughs> I mean, I did a play about my family. I, I, I did an adaptation of the book Alive about the Andes disaster and then, 
you know, I sat down and had dinner with the guys who'd been cannibals, and you know, uh, <laughs> we, we talked about, you know, you know, I had written what they said, and you know, they were vetting it and saying whether or not they felt that was credible. And um, you know, one of them asked me, he said, how did you know what it's like to be in the deep snow? And I said, I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> That's all I could come with by way of an answer. My mother wouldn't see Five Corners because, as she put it, I understand the mother's thrown out the window. <laughs> and she knew who, which mother that was. You know? So sure, no, I think it comes up in all our work. Come in yours, Diana. Well, I was gonna, I have the opposite problem, which is I think people assume that I'm writing autobiographically, mm. and then sort of feel stunned and betrayed when they find <laughs> out that I'm not, I'm not, you know. Um, so, stop guesses about these two women who you know fall in love and they kiss and they get beat up, and people would come to me afterwards. Did that happen to you? Or then, the, you know, the assumption that I was gay, and then really the sort of disenchantment when I wasn't. You know, I was very, you know. Um, uh, I, I was hurt by it, actually hurt and shocked, um, because I assumed that since I was a writer that people were counting on me to use my imagination. Um, though I do agree with what your student was saying in terms of content, you know, like it coming from a true place, but it was really ultimately for me about my, kind of my falling in love with my mother in a way. Um, and, and my newest play, you know, has a, Couple. This my, my new play is the first one I've written that's actually uh, have has race specific characters, um, and uh, and it is about a, you know a new mother and I'm not a new mother anymore but I am a mother and uh, so she's Korean American and the husband's African American and they move into this brownstone in Brooklyn and and the husband's actually was adopted into a white family so now they've moved into this primarily black neighborhood so they're they're all having sort of really racial identity issues and. Um, and my husband, you know, said to me, are people going to be disappointed I'm not black the way that they were disappointed that you're not gay? And I said, probably. <laughs> you know, but I do, I do, you know, sort of, I, I struggle with this assumption that you're, you're literally writing about your life all the time. You, I think you told us of one of your plays, which is not about your family, right? <laughs> one of your early plays. I, I, no, I, I truthfully, I wrote my mother over and over and over and over again, and uh, and she did finally come to see one of them, um, um, but uh, didn't didn't recognize herself at all, or wasn't I've able to say to me that she did. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think that it's it's that that parent-child relationship. I mean, this is like Oedipus. You know, hello. You know, this is not like something that new playwrights do. Uh, this is one of the central relationships in life, and so it's really the obligation of writers, I think, to put those big relationships up on the stage, and people continue to want to see them. You know, I mean, all my sons. Okay. Do you know? I mean, that's really one of the things that people have to figure out is what's their relationship to the people who've gone before, and and uh, so I think that all those parent plays are actually quite quite compelling. And um, I also had the belief that anything that has happened to you b belongs to you. In other words, if someone, whatever your parents did to you, that's yours. And so they can, you can, you know, you're free to portray them, crucify them, to, you know, beat up on them or salute them or whatever you want to do. But they, you know, you have the right to use them as characters because it did happen to you. It's not like something that you, you know, that you don't have a, you don't have a right to talk about. Um, and I think that that's a thing. People that know writers just need to get used to the idea that you're going to show up in the work because if you have any impact at all, we're going to write about you. 
Um, and that's just how it is. And if you're interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. I think that Oedipus Rex is about Sophocles' family. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that Sophocles is a child of somebody, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that if we really knew, we would have some idea and we could, you know, sit around in academic land and talk about that. But, you know, I, I just used it because it was an obvious good example. I don't have any inside info. No, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested in, I, I didn't, I wasn't being facetious. Uh, do you think that Sophocles is writing about his family or Oedipus Rex? I've never thought about it. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I, I get Marsha's point that, that, uh, that we all you the know, question, I mean, Oedipus' question is, where did I come from? Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, and how, do I, and how do I relate to the people in the world? How do I explain my attraction to that person? Mm -hmm. Do you know? Yeah. I mean, those are, all, those are all big family issues. And so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That one. You've yes, got to live with that <laughs> answer for the rest of your life. <laughs> Marjan <Marvin> said. <laughs> I, I want to talk about uh, about other people that you enter in that you welcome into your collaborations, um, specifically first directors. I mean, recently, as I'm sure you all know, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about the the copyright issue of directors and do do directors um, are they entitled to should they have a copyright in their own work? And then how on earth can you separate that out from um, from y y your your work as as writers? So, um, any director you know thoughts? I know that this the same director you've worked with, I don't know if you've all worked with, with the same... But do you want to know about people or do you want to know about this issue? Because this issue is very big and we I can want to talk about, about that. People first, because, uh -huh. because I think people leads you to the issue. I mean, are, are there directors that you have a particular relationship with that you feel, that you, that you feel is an important collaborator to you or just an interpreter? Um, well, there's certainly directors that I have felt that way about, and on this copyright issue, there are there there's one director that I felt was so helpful that I was willing to grant him a continuing interest in the play, um, and I think that that does happen a lot. Um, but you know, I think that the the issue is that that's a it's a decision that a writer needs to make on a case by case basis. Um, you can't make the decision. You can't be forced to decide that. Uh, you know, in advance of the work. Um, and you, you can't create a situation that makes it impossible for people to do later versions of the play. I mean, one of the, the issue around the director's copyright is that, you know, if somebody has the right to own the phrase, exits left carrying bananas, um, then, you know, then anybody that ever wants to do that again either has to, has to find out which version has that in it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the directors owning the stage directions is, a, is a, just a, a practical nightmare for the theater and would ultimately mean that everybody just stopped doing uh, anything that was owned by anyone. Um, you know, that, that you can't, you know, basically the stage directions are, are based on a piece of writing that is underneath them. Um, and that's what, you know, that's where the copyright belongs. Do you find that as writers you, you, you tend to put more stage directions in that are your notion of it so you can sort of protect from what a director might say or do you, do you, do you tend to write plays that, are, that, are, that, are, that don't have a lot of stage directions in it? 
you know, the thing, we just need to straighten yeah. out a couple of things about the issue you <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree, that was Copyright me. only, you know, to, to get a, you know, for Jerry Gutierrez or any of the people that have actually, uh, you know, are in the middle of this issue, at least historically, um, they simply send a copy of the script to the copyright office. When the, to have a copyright simply means that it arrived at the office. The office simply goes, it came in this day, and now we're going to file it over here. Right, and they don't, you know, just ha just having proof that they received it doesn't actually mean that you now own anything. Um, and the, you know, the actual ownership of the mar the notes in the stage directions, which is the notes in the margins, um, that's that's not actually. If you took the play away, they would really only only own the notes in the margins. You know, so that it's it's a thing that the courts are really going to have to look at in terms of what what actually is there to be owned, um, and what kind of nightmarish sort of record keeping process there would have to be if if any court actually ever found that you could own you know exit left carrying bananas. I, I was just going to say, I mean, because growing up, I read plays when I was young, and you know, I read a lot of Noel Coward, and you know, it said exit left, uh, carrying champagne glass, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't in any way, I don't actually write lots of stage directions, but I sort of write logical ones. Uh, or if I want them to be sitting on a couch, I may say that. And um, if then the director has them sitting on two chairs uh, separated, I feel that that's an interpretation, but not something that should be owned. So I actually haven't worked with any who've gotten up, upset about it. I, I've actually liked and enjoyed most of the directors I've worked with, and actually like and, and enjoy some of the ones who've been involved in legally too. But um, you know, and, and it isn't usually about just exiting left because that would be silly. I mean, it is true that some plays are hard to do, and if a director comes up with a, a particular interpretation that helps the play, to me that's, I understand their concern about it, and then they're also very concerned that some people in the country can go and see it on performing, Lincoln Center Performing Arts thing, and then go copy it. Um, I, though, don't know how to really protect them from that exactly, because it is true that when you look at the play, um, you know, just use, thinking of Noel Coward, I mean, you know, if it's, he sets it at two balconies in the Riviera, uh, I don't think a director should own that uh, almost no matter what they do. I, I mean, if, if they set it instead of on two balconies, on top of two elephants for some reason, um, it would be, you know, and that would either be a big flop or a big critical success and the director would be praised for it, but I don't know that that should be um, copyrighted. I, I don't know how you copyright that. Let's, can we, do you want to? Well, I think this is always a problem in theater, and I mean, I've dealt with it. I mean, the creation of my plays is always very collaborative, and so even before this was an issue, I was giving people who had been very, and also because I'm on stage and I really count on the director in the uh, creation of it to do, I mean, I've had, essentially what I'm saying is my directors have always been intensely dramaturgically involved and I have always uh, recognized that contractually. But that being said, it's often then been very difficult to quantify what that, mm -hmm. uh, what that's supposed to be and, you know, I think in the collaborative process, everyone gives 100% of what they have. You know, you're in, 
And then there comes this moment where you have to try to separate that out and quantify it. And of course, it's completely impossible to do. It becomes this and the courts intertwined not- thing. Um, and, and I'm, you know, horrified by this sort of copywriting notion. I, I completely agree with you that it's, it, I mean, I think in general, the, the sort of move in, in the world in general to, you know, limit the use of intellectual property is problematic and is, gonna, is you know, increasingly going to kind of shut down the free flow of ideas and creativity. But we also have all seen, I mean, I've certainly, you know, been to some um, regional theater or university theater and seen a production and thought, wow, they just totally lifted that production. They, I mean, we also know that thing. Right. I mean, directors do get their work lifted. And I don't know who the other directors are who are doing this. Well, this is one of the issues. Happen. Like, the Directors Guild itself need, you know, is trying hard to figure out how to police its own membership. Right, and the playwrights can't be punished for that. That's and the, right. the, the okay. ability of work to be done can't be shut down by that. It, it, it is one of those things, like, you know, the, thing, the pornography thing. You know it when you see it. Like, right. you know when somebody's work has been stolen. But then how, how do we... And what's the remedy? You what's know? the remedy? I mean, what's the remedy? And, and uh, is the, are the courts the place to make the determination? Exactly. Let's push this sl- slippery slope to the side slightly. And l- I wanted, <laughs> but I want to ask about, about w- have you had experience when you have um, written a play, it's been produced, it's been published, then you've gone to see a production of it that to you, either bears no resemblance to, I mean, they've just, they've reconceived it or they put it on top of an elephant or something like that. Have you had that experience and has it been pleasurable? <laughs> I, I, ha- I had an experience in Finland um, where, <laughs> where I'd been on this kind of USIA kind of, you know, drunken six weeks in Scandinavia <laughs> of seeing my plays done all in very cold, dark places, which my work is very popular there. And so. <laughs> At any rate, one, one evening I arrived sort of on the arm of the Finnish ambassador and, uh, and, the, and this enormous woman came up to me and she said, ah, oh, this evening your play be performed on a block of ice. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so proceeded this, this worst uh. moment in the, in the playwright's nightmare night when you sit down and Night Mother's a play that requires a sofa and a, and, and a kitchen table and a couple of doors and, and you know, sort of, oh, it's a little small house. So I go in and yeah. here on the floor is a gigantic cigarette pack and there's a vertical fish tank oh, there's a trapeze and on the floor there's this pink stained stuffed satin tiger <laughs> right and i'm thinking okay okay so there's the top of the play stuff like jesse like pops out of the cigarette pack she swings on the trapeze all night waving the gun at mama wearing f- fatigues the 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 moment in the play where people are supposed to change the sofa put on the, the dry sofa cover. Um, Jesse came out with this gigantic yellow and black velour tiger suit, and they stuffed this thing that was on the floor <laughs> to this tiger suit. And you know, your heart just, it, you, you just fall apart when that happens. Were all eyes on you to see how you were reacting? Or oh, no, I don't think that it made any difference. There was this curious <laughs> moment, though, at the end where they were introducing everyone, and the play had all been done in Finnish, but uh, you can understand a play that isn't in a language that you understand, because you know the play. <laughs> and so they were introducing everyone, dear, 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 and then mm. somebody would stand up and they would applaud. So then I hear this, dear, 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 Martian or 
arm. And, <laughs> and suddenly there was this thing, and I uh, thought, oh, my God, because I've already decided to close it down. Do you know, I've decided that afterward, I'm talking to the ambassador, he's talking to Samuel French, they're talking to the publishing, and, and it's, and, and you know, and I, but I did, of course, I stood up, and then there was, uh, people were looking at me like, what was that about? <laughs> what, did you, what was that play? I mean, you know, they, they had messed it up to the point that it was just incomprehensible. Did you close them down? I did. I did. Well, you know, I said, because they had changed the end, they had changed, you know, they just did, they made all these huge changes. And so what it does, actually, truthfully, like all of Rotten Life, it makes a great story. Right. But the experience of it was really painful. I've had bad experiences, but nothing as bad as that. That's amazing. <laughs> John, any that you've... Uh witnessed? I would have loved to have been there for that. <laughs> I would have loved that show. Um, no, nah, I mean, I, I did a, they did Danny in the Deep Blue Sea in, uh, in uh, Catalonia, and I went, and um, the director and translator sat next to me when I watched the play, and as uh, the lights came up, and the actors said the, the first few lines, the director started sobbing, and he sobbed through the, his own work moved him so deep that I couldn't really understand the play. I was like more concerned about it. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, another culture, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, I've seen, you know, bad productions, but actually I always sort of feel they're kind of get it. They get the play. They might not be able to do it. They may not get the elegance of it but they get the rude, large picture of it. So uh, I haven't been fortunate enough to have Marsha's experience. <laughs> Go to Finland, I think. I'm game, I'm there. They did my play on a block of ice, I'd be on the floor. <laughs> it was like, what, I have no like, part of me that's like, what are they gonna think of me in Finland? I have no... <laughs> they can hate me in Finland, I'll be fine. <laughs> Have any, have any of you gone back to plays that you have written before and made changes that have been published and have a life and gone on years later, gone and looked and, and thought, ooh, I could make that better? Or have you respected your own sort of work from the past to say, leave that where it is? Most of the time, I think it's dangerous to go back yeah. too far because mm -hmm. you're going to tinker with something that's all of one fabric and it's mm -hmm. going to yeah, look bad. Tennessee Williams used to do that. He used to go back and they stopped him. Uh -huh. uh, because uh, he was uh, doing things to his place that were in the other uh, judgment of many others, not not in their best interest. Yeah, I've had the same feeling, especially the plays I wrote in my twenties. I feel like I was such a different person then that it mm -hmm. would be very odd to go back to them now uh, mm -hmm. and try to do something. So, no. So one moves on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, primarily. I think sometimes you maybe have a trouble play, although I'm thinking ones that aren't published, actually, that you wonder about going back on. But truthfully, I haven't gone back on it, so maybe I won't. Well, another slightly troubling area, but I think we should touch on it. Has the, in your experience, has the critical community ever been helpful to you in terms of reviews of your shows that you have? Read? Well, I actually have one positive one, and oddly, the last time I did an American Theatre Wing sometime in the 90s, she was here, Edith Oliver of The New Yorker, and uh, she worked at the uh, O'Neill as a dramaturg, and, um, you know, I'm sure there were some people who were unhappy with her reviews, but um, partially, I always thought that in many ways she was a very kind reviewer, uh, and uh, I think her working as a dramaturg uh, gave her a lot of insight about, you know, it's, it's hard to write a play. Anyway, she was very um, supportive, and when my play Beyond Therapy was done, off-Broadway, um, 
it was weird. Back then, <laughs> there were two previews, which was crazy. And the, the uh, second preview, most of the papers came to, and it was really an uncertain one, and they were mostly bad reviews. And then the magazine reviews came to opening night, and that was a good performance, and they were mostly good, including Edith Oliver's in The New Yorker, except she said, um, when there's the act two restaurant scene, the audience is on cloud nine, and they want to go home. And Durang, however, has two more scenes yet to do, and he should realize that wrapping up plot is not a strong point. It doesn't really matter. We, the, he should have ended when they're all on cloud nine. And um, uh, we had still like a month of uh, performances to get through, and every time that scene would come up, I would whisper to the director, Jerry Zach, Edith, Edith wants to go home now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Because I was realizing I, I did have to tie it up, but after about a couple of weeks, I thought, okay, she's, it was a very nice review. What she really means is the play feels like it's about to end now, and it's upsetting that it doesn't. And so uh, I was lucky enough to get a Broadway producer for it who also agreed that the play needed to be rewritten at the ending. And I, um, I took Edith's suggestion in the, in the print that it should end here, and in the original version, it's a very, uh, it's a, uh, a dinner where uh, uh, Bruce's ex, uh, his lover Bob comes with a, a shotgun and, and uh, it's actually a blank gun, but scares everybody and Prudence gets mad and goes home. So in the rewrite, she didn't get mad and got home. I found a way to keep her in the restaurant, to let it wrap up in the restaurant and uh, I do, and that's the published version. And so, um, so thank you, Edith. <laughs> Did she come back and see it on Broadway? And Oh, I hope she did. I don't know. It's interesting. When I saw her, uh, I was here, uh, as oddly as an actor, for putting it together, the Sondheim Review, which I enjoyed doing. And afterward, I saw Edith, who came up, and, and, and I said, oh, it's nice to see you. And I said, you know, I haven't been writing as many plays. Uh, I feel guilty about it. And she said, oh, yeah, but you're going into a different period of your life. And it was after Laughing Wild, and it, 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 it was actually she who made me think kind of the thoughts John had about maybe I'm moving in a different thing. Um, uh, I don't mean to, to be too loving about critics. We've all been traumatized as well as including stopping writing for long periods. <laughs> and it is, playwrights are also famous for remembering all our bad reviews verbatim and, and not remembering the good ones. Um, but anyway, I have a fun uh, feeling in my heart for Edith. Any other critic? I'd like to see some more inspiring critics. And by that, I don't mean that they, you know, really like what you do and say how much they like it, but that in fact they, uh, they see something in what you're doing or, and or, they see something in the future world that they ache for and they can describe it well enough to inflame people to go in that direction. Um, having said that, I've never experienced such a critic, <laughs> never seen such a critic. Uh, Kenneth Tynan had moments uh, that were, were rather inspiring. Um, uh, when he said, uh, look back in anger, that anybody who doesn't like this play is not my friend. <laughs> That's somebody taking a risk, you know, a personal risk and putting something on the line, a different kind of thing on the line. Uh, uh, and entering the, the theater collaboration in a different way. Uh, but I think anybody, or most of the people who have that spark, uh, don't go into that. Uh, 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 and I think that's too bad. I've seen some young critics who, who have that, have a bit of that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and they either get out 
or it sort of dims? I mean, the, the interesting question, I mean, I agree with you, that's an interesting kind of criticism to read, but in terms of, for an individual playwright, though, what that critic aches to see in the world is what that critic aches to see in the world and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what the playwright aches to see in the world. Yeah. And, and so the problem yeah. is that there's not, that we're dependent on one paper, basically, that there's not enough. Yeah. You know, I mean, a yeah. lot of interesting critics would be helpful. I don't know. I mean, I got a rave review from the New York Times for a play a few years ago, and nobody came anyway. Because <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make them come. War was on. Everybody's staying home watching the war. But know? it can stop them from coming. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, and I, I assume that you've all had some version of the experience of the critics not going for a show too well, and audiences. I mean, I saw The Color Purple the other night, and I, you, know, you couldn't have, there wasn't a seat to be had in the theater right. in the middle of January. Right. You know, and the, the critics weren't overly kind to it. And, um, well, it wasn't it, about them. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? I mean, I think one of the, the thing, though, that's just me being me, but um, I think that there's a thing I wish for, with critics is that they knew who did what. I wish that they had, were in, involved enough in the theater as a world um, I mean, you know, restaurant critics can tell the difference between the waiters and the chef, right? <laughs> and if, Good point. if we had that, even, that would be really helpful. So that if we had people that could tell what was direction, what was writing, and what was acting, you know, if we could, that would be fantastic. Because then I think writers could really take responsibility for the part that they did. Um, and I think that's, unfortunately, that's not what happens a lot of the time. Could we do that? Could we get the restaurant critics? Well, <laughs> you know, one of the things I wish, too, I wish that we had restaurant critics, you know, these people love to eat. Do you know? They do. You can feel it. And when they, when they don't get the food they like, they still like food, right. but they just don't like, like that food. food. And I, that's what I wish we had in, in critics, you know, people that just loved the theater. And when they were unhappy, it was unhappy because they loved it so much, not because um, they were eager to wipe it off the face of the earth, which is, I think, what happens, you know, what's, uh, what, what's going on at the moment at any rate. Do you think Juilliard could have a critic's program, or do you think it's... I think we've had a couple of writers at Juilliard. We've had a couple that we tried to twist their arms and say, you know, Mike, <laughs> in this one case, this is what you need to be doing. You need to be writing because you see everything and you, you know, I, I think that, that playwrights actually could probably turn into wonderful reviewers, but given the bad things we say about them, who would want to be one? So, you know, <laughs> but, I, but I think clearly if, if critics came out of, you know, some real theatrical training, that would, that would be a plus. I like the fashion critics, probably the best. I mean, they're the best writers. Uh, uh, and they're thinking in the most interesting way. I like this idea of just having critics from other stuff. Yeah. Like have fashion critics, critics review the play. Yeah. But yeah. then they just say, oh, dowdy. <laughs> <laughs> have you had... had I mean, I, 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 I sort of, by the way, tongue in, in a way, because I feel like, oh, well, on the one hand, I have criti you know, good reviews to thank for the fact that I support my family. Um, <clears throat> um, but specifically with, a, with um, my new play, I, I do remember reading a, a, a review of a sort of subsequent regional production of Stop Kiss when they sort of said, okay, these punchy, this, you know, you know unpredictable sequence of punchy scenes, you know, is engaging, but... I wonder if this writer can really sustain conflict and drama within a scene. Or da -da. And I thought, oh, I, I, that's a challenge I'd like to meet. Mm -hmm. You know, I really felt, and I really, my big, you know, thing, when I, when I started this new play, is, you know, trying to, 
you know, shape all these ideas into one storyline and all. But the thing that really drove me was, just remember to write longer scenes. <laughs> it was like, and every time I feel the impulse to end a scene, I just go, just keep writing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, Does the role of the dramaturg also enter into, so it, 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 is a dramaturg, which I've never quite understood what a dramaturg is, never been one, but are they sort of supposed to be critics at an earlier stage for you guys, or are they? I have no interest in them. We don't speak, <laughs> but you know, they serve the purpose, I think, in the theater, you know, where there are historical matters to be dealt with, where there's explanation to be done and research to be done. Um, you know, I think that, that um, it's become a kind of unfortunate practice that there are dramaturgs who, are, who get too soon in the lives of, of young writers in particular, mm. and, and sort of who, get, who are there to sort of read plays for a theater. You know, ba basically they're having a life out in the regional theaters, you know, to sort of read plays and assist in various ways in the literary department. And I think playwrights by and large find that they, they you know, just would like to be left alone. You know, wait till I ask you a question, I think is sort of the, the thing that most writers feel, although clearly dramaturgs love the theater and know what, know what it is, so. Are they, are they perhaps frustrated writers themselves, or? I don't think so. No, not mm -hmm. by and large. They really are uh, more like editors are in the world of writers. Mm -hmm. Uh, of books. Fortunately, with the cutbacks in the arts, most theaters can't afford them. <laughs> I mean, I worked very, uh, John Diaz worked as a dramaturg on Well, and the structure of Well is very complicated. And Lee and John and I collaborated on the, you know, teasing out of that structure. But I would agree that when I would do workshops at a regional theater and would just be given this person who I was expected to accept comments on the play, I would think, you don't know anything about my play. You know, I don't know why I, why is this happening? I don't understand what the assumption is. We get a lot of complaints at the Dramatists Guild that in regional theaters, the dramaturg is used to convey the notes of the artistic director. Mm. So that, you know, this person comes into the room purporting to be a friend, <laughs> right? but actually bearing the, you know, cut the second scene by 30 minutes. Do you know, that, right. that sort of note. That because the artistic director doesn't have the guts to do it in the time. Or does it, or is busy, time, right? you know? Or, but but it's, a, it's odd, it's a thing that's kind of, we, I feel like everybody's sort of in discussion about the role. You know, playwrights would love to know that they could get to the theater and have a friend there. You know, mm -hmm. somebody to talk to and go, you know, have a drink with and that would be great. So if there's one thing that you could do to improve the state of the, the theater and the playwright in the theater, what, what, what might that be? Any thoughts? I have a thought. Shoot. Uh, I mean, this is not a major thought, but I think that, um, I mean, when we were at Sundance, uh, which Marsha and I were there in the same year, my dramaturg at that time was Jocelyn Clark from the Abbey. Um, <clears throat> and he just ca kind of casually mentioned at one point that playwrights always got to see plays at the Abbey for free. And I thought, well, of course they do. And I thought, why, I mean, I thought, and I sort of became possessed, and we're trying to do this in some modified way for well, but I, I became possessed with the idea that actually there should be a system in the New York theater where every actor, every playwright, every director, everyone working in the theater can go to the box office and you know show some a union card or whatever, and if there's a free seat, they can go see the show. And Michael Summers actually told me that that was uh, part of the culture in the 1800s, and it was called honoring the profession. And I feel like none of us can afford to, I mean, I feel like ticket prices in general are a basic problem, but I also feel like it's a culture of scarcity. We all talk trash about shows none of us have seen, 
And we need to be in it together, mm -hmm. and we need to have the cross-pollination of ideas of really getting to see what everyone else is doing. And I just think that we should all be able to go each other, see every show in New York for free. That's a, that's a, a good idea and probably a good place for us to end this conversation. <laughs> Just because where, where do you go from there? It, it should be done, though. Anyway, I'd like to thank you all very much for being on the panel. This is... <laughs> this is the American Theater Wings working in the theater seminars coming to you from the Graduate Center of the C uh, City University of New York. Thanks very much. Thank